0: This is a one-hour debate for Utah's third congressional district. Republican incumbent John Curtis discusses the issues with party challenger Chris Herrod. Our moderators for Decision 2022 are Boyd Matheson and Maria chaleos on KSL News Radio. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I am Boyd Matheson and sitting alongside Maria chaleos which is always a bonus for Great me. To be here. Great to tag team as we moderate the third congressional district debate with Representative John Curtis and Challenger Chris. Chris Herod, uh, we know both of you well, and we really want this to be a kitchen table conversation today. So we're going to dispense with misters and representatives and titles of all kinds. We're going to go with Chris and John and Maria and Boyd, and we're going to have a chat uh, for those of the 3rd District, if everybody's good with that. And uh, Maria, will Toss it to you to give us the, uh, the lowdown on how All we're going right. to proceed. This is
1: how we're going to do it. We're going to begin by giving each candidate two minutes to make an opening statement. We will then jump into our questions for the candidates. Now, we've done a coin toss to see who will begin. And our producer, Carlos artiles Fortune, will also keep time for us to make sure each candidate is given an equal amount of a time. And we're going to hold you to that time. Okay. Now, with that, let's get started with opening statements, up beginning with Chris Herrod.
2: Well, thank you Maria and thank you Boyd and Thank you, John, for being here. I look forward to this conversation uh, about a week ago. I received a call uh, from an older woman uh, who who called and told her told me why she was voting for me. Uh, her and her husband were recently um, uh, retired, and they were uh, you, you could tell by the the tone of her voice that she was greatly concerned that uh, they were on a fixed income and they were seeing uh, Costco go up dramatically, and in fact, so dramatically uh, that they were in the process of selling their trailer uh, because they couldn't afford the gas to take their trailer uh, uh, up, up up, the mountain or to go away, and there are a lot of people hurting right now, and uh, you, know, you know, my family, we we're having to make ch- uh, choices with where we go, we're, we're driving less, uh, and there's a pinch, but the sad thing is, that, is it didn't have to happen. Uh, you look at rising inflation. Uh, what's happened, we have, as a country, have spent uh, a tremendous amount of, of money as a, as a nation over the last uh, two years. You, you look at the, the money that we spent on COVID. You look to what happened as we restricted people's ability to make a living. We divided businesses into essential and non-essential and we wonder why we're having uh, uh, shortages right now. Well, that, that's what happens when you basically move to a pl- planned economy. Um, you know, I've spent a considerable part of my life in, in Eastern Europe, and I've seen what happens when the government gets overly involved. Uh, the same thing, uh, you know, when we allow uh, radical environmental policies, when we don't push back. You look at energy uh, policies that are ha- happening. A year ago, or a year and a half ago, we were energy independent. We are not now, and we need to make sure that we defeat uh, the AOC's radical environmental policies. But I look forward to a, a, a straightforward to debate today. Thank you.
3: Well, now go to John for opening statement. Uh, likewise. Thanks, uh, Maria, Boyd, uh, Chris. Uh, great to be here. Thanks to KSL for hosting this. Chris, this seems to be our lot in life to do a lot of debating. I don't know how many times we've <laughs> debated, but it feels a little bit like deja vu, <laughs> even here in this very room. L- listen, the first thing I'd like to say is a big thanks uh, to the constituents of the 3rd District. Uh, you've honored me with three terms in Congress, and uh, I'm asking for a fourth. I don't take that lightly. I'm, I'm really pleased with my record. I, I want you to know that I've worked hard on your behalf Uh, We've been able to pass 14 bills in that four and a half years, bills dealing with public lands, human trafficking, opioids, small business reform, substantial issues for, for people in our district. I've also worked hard to secure a spot on the important Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, energy right now is playing a significant role in our lives and i find myself right in the center of that and and, and well placed for utah to be part of that debate this district represents coal oil and gas so that's all very important also we oversee health care also a very important topic i hope we get to talk about today and there's an exciting announcement coming in from washington on mental health uh this upcoming week so i look forward to the discussion and sharing my thoughts and let's begin
1: All right. Well, for our listeners who may just be joining us, you're listening to a debate with Utah's third congressional district candidates. And as we begin the question and answer portion of our debate, we ask each candidate to keep in mind that at this stage in the campaign, most people know what you're against. So today is really an opportunity for you to tell voters what you are for.
0: So each candidate will be given 60 seconds to respond to each question. Uh, If you call out the challenger, they'll be given an additional 60 seconds for a rebuttal as well. And we're going to try to move through as many topics as possible, so uh, we'll we'll ask each of you uh, not to backtrack uh, topics, as we know is very popular in (laughs) debates these days, uh, and stick to the issue at at hand. We're trying to do it like uh, Congress should do, and that is a single subject at a time. (laughs) Uh, So that that will be uh, be our approach today. So uh, Marie, is going to kick us off with the first question.
1: All right. poll show most Americans believe the economy, inflation, the biggest issue this election. Uh, with inflation up 8.6% over the past year, gas prices here in Utah over $5 a gallon, it's pretty easy to understand why that's the top issue. So what do you believe the role of Congress is in bringing down inflation and what would you specifically do to make that happen? And we begin this time with John.
3: Right. So listen, uh, going back to high school economics, we know This is a problem with too much money money tracing too few of goods. And the federal government's responsible for both. Uh, The $1.9 trillion that was spent a little over a year and a half ago was gasoline poured on an inflation fire, and ever since then this administration has done everything they can to continue to pour money into the economy, including things like cancelling student debt. Mission number one is to stop the spending, and that's why it's so important for Republicans to take back the House. You can imagine the frustration of being in a situation where they carry the day every day. So that's mission number one. Mission number two is we have to open up the supply chain. We saw with Abbott Laboratories exactly what government is doing that's causing a problem. The Abbott was ready to open. The government wouldn't even tell them what they had to do to open. And that's why we have a problem on the supply chain side. And over to
2: Chris. You know, one of the best things I think you do is, is get government out of the way. Uh, over the last two years, we've had restrictions uh, on individuals like never before. Again, as I mentioned, we have uh, deemed businesses essential and non-essential. We need to get uh, get rid of those restrictions. It's one of the things that uh, you know President Trump got rid of many of those restrictions, uh, and he did that by executive order, but we need to do that uh, by law, and so we need to make sure that we pass laws to, to free up those businesses. But the other part of that is, you know, there has been a tremendous amount of spending, and the Republicans uh, are, are almost as much to blame as the Democrats. You look at, you know, there's, you know, we've recently even spent uh, $40 million uh, on Ukraine. We, we continue to, uh, to um you know, fund the Department of Education and other departments that I don't think are necessary. So we got to get back to the Constitution. But the other thing that we need to do is really open up our energy resources. Uh, you look at the amount that transportation costs, which are gasoline costs, that's one of the things that has really done uh, inflation.
0: All right, well, uh, we're going to drill down on that just a little bit further. So while Democrats and Republicans seem to disagree on the the size and scope of government, uh, both sides seem to have been pretty united on deficit spending and driving up the national debt. And a lot of Americans have sort of become numb to the fact that we are $30 trillion in debt. So the question is, what are the risks and what are the solutions to this perpetual debt and deficit spending and we'll start with chris well you know the, the risk I, I truly believe that our national uh
2: debt is a national security issue and, and actually there's you know uh, people in the department of defense that believe that as well because i, I i've lived through hyperinflation uh when when i w- one of the years that i lived in the ukraine and what it does is it punishes everybody that ever did everything right and um, you know, you see life savings and then you have political unrest. Un- and so, you know, I, I have a record. I was there when the first key party was planned in the state of Utah. And the sad thing uh, that, that happened with that is we were protesting a $700 billion Trump or a TARP bill and a $9 trillion debt. And that was in 2009. And now we're up to over $30 trillion. And so we're to the point where we need to cut and cut pretty much, I would say, uh, most things uh, other than uh, defense. John, over to you.
3: It's fair to blame Democrats and it's fair to blame Republicans in Washington. But I'm going to bring up a third party that that needs to look in the mirror, and that's all of us. We've trained a populace to like free things, free education, free health care. $1,400 $1,400 checks, stimulus checks, right? And I've seen firsthand from my seat in Washington that politicians really are only responding to constituents and sadly, even here in Utah. And I think the, the way that we begin fixing this thing is each of us expecting less from government, demanding less from government, and then electing officials who have the courage to actually stand up and do that. And I, at this point, this is where I would point out, I have voted against every... every. Uh, increase in the debt ceiling since going to congress and consistently fought for the republican party to regain the reputation as the fiscal conservatives Maria. okay
1: let's let's do a follow up here and the follow up would be so what role do taxes both individual and corporate have on debt and deficits and we'll begin with you
3: so one of my like Best moments in Congress was arriving just in time to uh, vote for the 2017 Tax Reform Act. It was really cool. And we saw what happened for a short period of time before COVID, what happened when we cut taxes. It was dramatic. The, the revenue uh, to the government was up, uh, even with, with tax cuts. And we were on a trajectory uh, to get, to be in a really good place in this country. And, of course, uh, then the COVID hit and changed all the equations. Now, interestingly, if you look at revenues this year, they are way up again. And uh, what we need to do is understand that we don't prosper as a a country by taking money from people. We prosper as a country by letting them keep it and spending wisely uh, on the government level. And that's where true prosperity lies. it is that uh,
2: belief the understanding that uh government doesn't create jobs uh when it takes money out of the system it it produces some jobs temporarily but it doesn't create it, it just consumes and so it is that understanding uh, of making sure that we have right uh, a tax policy uh you know and and you know we have to push up against the left when they keep saying you know where they, they keep wanting to raise taxes on corporations well who pay those taxes eventually it is uh you know people when they make their their profits that they're paying those taxes uh and so uh but if we raise taxes just on corporations those corporations will go other places and we actually decrease and so i I do support the policies over the last uh the last administration that, that gave us this economic boom
0: Murray, we'll stay with you. One more
2: question.
1: All right. Uh, I'm going to move on to the House Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol who's been holding public hearings and the committee releasing evidence that shows former President Trump's efforts to overturn the election. My question is, why should voters casting their ballots in this primary election feel confident that the results are legitimate?
2: Chris, the, we'll begin the, with you. The, the legit uh, of the election or of the January 6th? commission
1: when we go out and we vote every day why how sh- how do we know that our votes actually count
2: you know for, for for me this is you know i am concerned about that uh and it and it's uh, it bodes it doesn't bode well when anybody thinks that our uh, elections are not safe you know uh, for, for the left or the right. And so this is one of the things that, you know, I am, uh, called me old-fashioned. I believe in the Constitution. I believe that the election, according to the Constitution, is supposed to be on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And yet we've gone now to vote by mail and these other things that have extended the elections for uh, two months. Uh, I'm a, I'm a same-day, in-person, paper-ballot voter ID guy. And you look at, we, uh, France just had two elections with paper ballots. They had the results the same day. And for me, it's one of those things that uh, it's very simple. If you understand stats, you can take random samples and have a very accurate uh, understanding of whether the election is secure. But if, if people don't trust the system, and there is a lot of mistrust on both sides right now, we will have violence in this country. And so we need to get back to the basics.
1: Okay, John?
3: One of the biggest fights in Washington, D.C. right now is uh, federalizing elections. uh, We're voting and have been talking about H.R. 1 all year. You know the significance because when a party comes into power, they number the bills by priorities. So H.R. 1 tells you this is the number one Democratic priority. And it's federalizing the elections. So the first answer to the question is not so much what we do as what we don't do, and that's move this to a federal level. The founders were very wise. They put into the Constitution that, this, that elections should be handled on a state level. And this, there's a lot of wisdom in that. So mission number one for me is fighting this on the federal level to keep this on a state level. I think this next thing we need to do is uh, there's both the responsibility on the elected officials that carry out the elections and on those of us who vote to study and research what our state is doing. You know, it's interesting, my campaign went to many of the counties as they tested their their balloting system uh, this year, and it was pretty lonely there. Uh, There weren't people there watching to see how this works, and we we, we need to bear some of that responsibility ourselves to say, what are we doing here in the state? And I'll just tell you firsthand, I think the state's done a lot of hard work, and they need to continue to work to assure that people feel comfortable with their vote. All right. uh, We're going to continue on here. And uh, once again, we find
0: ourselves uh, grappling with guns, Second Amendment rights, safety, security, and policy. Uh, Of course, there's a bipartisan framework. No legislative text will be very clear there, so I'm not going to ask you whether or not you would vote for something that doesn't exist yet. Thank you. Uh, We also have noted that there uh, were 21... Uh, House members, Democrats in the House, who called on Speaker Pelosi to break up the House packages into individual small precision pieces. And so the question to each of you, gentlemen, is what are some of the policies that you could vote for? Not in some as part of some big massive bill. But if uh, Congress were to take this approach of precision bills,
3: where would you start? What are those pieces that you could vote for today? And we'll start with John. Well, listen, um This has been uh, very real for me. Uh, Many people that know me know that I spent a good part of my career with firearms. I actually lectured for the NRA and and am endorsed by the NRA. But at the same time, my heart is broken like everybody else across the country as we've seen this. I mentioned in my introduction uh, mental health. Uh, This upcoming week, we will vote on mental health parity which will bring tremendous resources uh, to the mental health uh, field uh, in in all categories and especially with our youth. This is critically important. What's exciting about this bill that we're voting on is we've found a pay-for that actually reduces the deficit by $200 million as we pass this bill. So, And it's bipartisan, so super important. Now, beyond that, of course, there are things that we should be looking at. I was actually impressed in the Senate when they said juvenile records should be included in a background check for people up to 21. That seems like obvious. So I think there are good things that they're finding over there in the Senate, and I'm anxious to look at it and see what they come up with. And over to
2: Chris. Uh, you know, this issue is personal. As most people know, I've spent quite a bit of uh, time in Ukraine, and most people aren't familiar with Holodomor, which happened in the 1930s, uh, uh, 1932 to 1937. Stalin came right after the ha- harvest and took all uh, the food, uh, and he had two years before taking all the guns away and so that year 7 to 11 million Ukrainians uh, starved to death so I am an Advent supporter of the second amendment things that I believe that we could do is uh, you know I, I, ha- I do support hardening our schools you know and the fact of having single point entry you look at what happened in Texas and unfortunately uh, there was a door that for some reason was not able to be locked and uh, you know I, uh, I do believe that there's COVID money I, th- I think I much of the covid money spent on schools could have been better sent on um, making sure that they had a single entry and making sure that they have systems that work and so i su- i support those type of things but but i don't believe in in infringement on the second amendment
0: yeah i'd like to stay with the question just a little bit longer if we can uh, on this one because it's it, it's one that we really do have to grapple with and i think there's a lot of uh, pieces and so i'm going to give you each uh, 60 more seconds uh, okay. to, to drill them we kind of you each took a, a a good piece and i think those are crucial conversations uh, let's take one more bite at the apple Uh, So, again, we'll start with John.
3: Well, um, red flag laws get a a lot of discussion. And uh, there's some discussion about that coming out of the Senate. Um, But the concern with red flag laws is the due process. And uh, there are bills out there that actually put in due process. And so I'm interested to look and see what actually comes across from the Senate, whether or not there's adequate due process. Uh, I've also talked uh, with Senator Romney's office to, to learn that uh, the level of encouragement of states to do red flag laws also is important in any bill that would come across, how much pressure there is on those, on those uh, red flag laws. And uh, I, I'll, I'll give Chris a shout out on hardening our schools. Certainly, we need to be spending money on that, and we, and, and that should be a priority. Uh, all of our children unequivocally should feel safe uh, in the schools that they go to.
2: and, and I do, I, I uh, share the same concern about red flag log, uh, laws because that's a slippery slope when you, if you don't, do not have the due process or, you know, even if you say, well, you know, if somebody's ever had a, a, a metal uh, face depression, are you going to take away a, a person's ability to, uh, um, you know, own a gun? Or you, you look at our military veterans, uh, I don't know how, how anybody that has been in active service doesn't have some PTSD or things like that, and that shouldn't just be used to take away a, a gun. But I also think that well, you know over the last uh, two years our, our, our kids have been taught to, to be fearful. The fact of the matter is is that nobody wants to say this but our schools are still some of the safest places for kids to be and we shouldn't you know we, we need to do those things to make sure that it doesn't happen again but our uh, kids shouldn't uh, live in fear that this is going to happen it, statistically you're, you're much more likely to die on your way to, to going to your car you're more, more likely to to drown on and, uh, and things, and our kids need to be taught that reality so, so that they can learn as well.
1: I'd like to drill down just a little bit farther on this and talk about whether either one of you would be in favor of perhaps enhanced background checks or some sort of waiting period. Uh, several of the cases that we saw recently of mass shootings, um, they were 18-year-olds who bought their guns within two weeks of when those shootings occurred. So I'd like to hear from both of you your feelings on that, and Chris, mm-hmm. we'll start with you. Yeah,
2: you know, on, on the 18 Year old, you know, for me the difficulty I have is that we are we allow a kid uh, an eighteen year old to go off and fight a foreign war for us, and then for him not to be able to come back and to buy a hunting rifle. rifle um, I, I struggle, but I believe that that's a state uh, that's best determined on the state level, uh, on, on as far as the eighteen year old. You know, I, I do think as far as opening records, as I think John mentioned before, is you know, you know, all of a sudden it's not like somebody turns eighteen and they're past is gone and so you know if we do uh you know open up uh, uh that so that people can see if they've had violent ten- tendencies before that uh, uh but going much further than that i i struggle with uh you know the vast majority of uh, americans that own guns own do them uh, own them responsibly. And so we have to be very careful not to to blame and take the rights away from those individuals, but try to find those that that might do others harm.
3: So Maria, there's something missing here, and that's data. We don't have the data to make these decisions, and that's really unfortunate. And uh, those who've studied this know that up until just a couple of years ago, the federal government actually prohibited federal funds from being spent on studying firearms. Well, we lifted that ban a couple of years ago, but we've not really studied that. And for me to make a decision like you're talking about, I need to see data, right? And, and so when we hear a news story, it, it, it sounds like that's exactly what's in front of us, and that's the cause, But we really need to drill down much deeper. If you look at what happened in Texas, you'll see that we let these kids down in many ways. Um, The police department obviously was not trained at a level that any of us are comfortable with. Uh, As just a good example. How in the world does this 18-year-old escape a a, a safety net that didn't notice that he was was in a really bad place? And so I think those are all equally important. And before I could really give you a good answer on that, I'd want to see the hard data of of can this really make a difference and what is causing this? Fantastic. If you're just joining
0: us, this is the third congressional district debate here on KSL News Radio. I'm Boyd Matheson and tag teaming with Maria Shaleo today to moderate this uh, debate uh, between Representative John Curtis and Chris Herrod. Uh, we've had a great conversation in terms of, uh, uh, a host of issues and we have much more to come. Uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to step aside for bottom of the hour news. So this is your halftime uh, moment. You can go grab your popcorn or uh, get a beverage uh, and be ready. When we come back, we're going to dig in a little bit deeper into uh, a host of things impacting the country and where we head next. Everything from protecting the environment to filling our uh, nation's energy needs. Uh, so stay with us on our third congressional debate. It's a kitchen table conversation today with Chris Herod and Representative Representative John Curtis, Maria Chaleos. I'm Boyd Matheson. We'll go ahead and step aside for bottom of the hour news. We'll be right back. A debate for Utah's third congressional district with Republicans John Curtis and Chris Herron on KSL News Radio. Thanks again for joining us for this special programming, Primary Elections. I'm Boyd Matheson, joined by Maria Shaleos, moderating the debate today between John Curtis and Chris Herod. And uh, we've had a great conversation so far, kitchen table style. We like that and uh, elevated conversation. And so let's continue on. Uh, Maria, let's get into the back half of this. Yes,
1: for our listeners who are just tuning in, each candidate is being given 60 seconds to respond to each question. And another 60 seconds if there's a rebuttal at our discretion.
0: So let's begin this uh, second half uh, by talking about something that uh, impacts us a great deal, uh, not just here in the state of Utah, but around the country, and that is dealing with energy and the environment. Uh, so when it comes to energy and the environment, there there seems to be uh, there are its own kind of climate change. We've got a lot of heated accusations, a lot of anger, fear, and frustration. Uh, we also have a lot of Arctic frost, I think, uh, when it comes to a lot of these fake fights and false choices in our nation's capital, which leaves most of us as voters and as citizens pretty confused about uh, the impact projections, results. uh, Can we get to policies that actually do make a difference? So the question, gentlemen, is what is the reality in terms of where we are when it comes to energy, the environment, and climate, and where are the real opportunities uh, for impact? And I believe we're starting with Chris. Is that right? Yeah, starting with Chris. Uh, You know,
2: I would argue that our energy independence is a national security issue. Uh, You know, I understand, uh, having spent, you know... uh Nearly five years of my life overseas. I understand who Putin is. He looks at the United States right now, and he sees us as weak because a year and a half ago we were energy independent. We're not willing to drill now. Uh, he sees that we're you know we're having uh, existential crisis about critical race theory and, and other things. But we need to make sure that we get back to the basics of uh, of our economy, and we have. Uh, one of the greatest blessings this nation has is we are an energy-rich nation. And I can tell you that I fear, uh, I fear Putin and, and China much more than I do global warming. Uh, because you have to look at things in a cost-benefit analysis. We do things here better than anywhere else in the world. And so we should be drilling here in the United States. We should be producing uh, refinery uh, here. And if we don't, I, I see it as the only way out of our national debt right now. And so we mean need to make sure we do that.
3: John? You mentioned false choices and there's no better example than a false choice than this idea that we must sacrifice national security, we must sacrifice affordability, we must sacrifice U.S. jobs, we must sac- sacrifice reliability, Also we can lower emissions. The reality of it is, that's not what's in front of us, and Republicans have the plan for this and this is why I've been so vocal on it. We can have national security, we can have affordable prices, we can use fossil fuels to lower greenhouse gas emissions, and lower the greenhouse gas emissions more than it's been done anywhere else in the world right now. You know, the United States has lowered greenhouse gas emissions more than the next 10 countries combined. And we've done it with the fossil fuel. I had a chance to go to Europe just as the war was breaking out. And they brought me over there to show me how proud they were of what they've done on climate. Well, what I saw is they've cut nuclear in half. They've refused to frack. And as a result, today they're producing more greenhouse gas emissions than ever. We have to make sure we don't follow that same path here in the United States. Are there any uh,
0: particular, let's stay with this Perhaps. one just a little bit longer. Uh, Chris, we'll start with you. Uh, what are some of the things you think that we can do uh, as a realist, or how do we get to some consensus in terms of what our policy really ought to look like uh, when it comes to climate?
2: You know, I, I, I think, and this is one of the things that conservatives haven't done, uh, and uh, Republicans. We have kind of taken the narrative, we've bought off on the narrative of what I call catastrophic global warming, uh, which is not a fact. If you actually I, I taught a, a university class about six years ago and we studied the, the paper that comes that 97% of the t- uh, uh, scientists believe in, in climate change. Well when you read it, only uh, about a quarter of the scientists believe in catastrophic. And so we have to push back against the AOCs and what our kids are being taught is that their parents don't care about the environment. That there, there's no good thing that comes from uh, fossil fuels. If you look at what's happening right now in sure Sri uh, Lanka a year ago they banned chemical fertilizers which come primarily from fossil fuels and they're having, not to people's surprise, a famine. Uh, and so our kids under, need to understand the importance that fossil fuels have played in the development of, of the United States, and we need need to push back, actively push back against AOCs and the
3: radical climate change. John, three weeks ago I was the keynote speaker at the Houston's Petroleum Club. And why would they invite the little kid from Utah down there? Because they love what I'm saying about petroleum. Do you know that U.S. natural gas is 40% cleaner than Russian natural gas? You want to lower greenhouse gas emissions? Put our, our, our economy on steroids? Build national security? export u.s. natural gas around the world and and we can lower greenhouse gas emissions at the rate right same time so the answers to this ironically are right in republicans wheelhouse we have the answers we've just stayed on the sidelines in this debate we have the answers nuclear is a good example innovation uh, that, that's coming right here out of utah there's amazing innovation i visited a, a plant uh, just two weeks ago that's a, a natural gas burning plant closed loop, meaning zero emissions coming out of that national gas plant. Carbon sequestration, uh, new nuclear. I mean, the list goes on and on. And these answers are very, very comfortable for Republicans.
0: Maria?
1: All right. So our temperature is going to be over 100 degrees today. People are concerned about the drought, whether they're going to have enough water for their crops, their lawns, trees, vegetables. So my question is, what do you believe needs to be done to protect Utah's water sources, like water from the Colorado River, from going to places like Arizona and California? And John, we'll begin with you this time.
3: Listen, this is an all-hands-on-deck answer. Everything from individuals uh, conserving water better, to cities and counties and states planning better, and to the federal government getting involved, not just with these lawsuits and making sure they're settled in, in, in a way that's beneficial for Utah, but in financing water projects. So this is where we need direction from from the state. You know, we've we've had amazing success as a country financing water projects in a way that didn't cost the taxpayers a dollar. Every every time we we finance these water projects, the, the federal government's paid back through ratepayers. So we need to continue uh, doing what we've done there. We need to fight the good fight and protect ourselves both on. On a state level and on a federal level, and uh, everybody from from individuals to, to everybody we know has got to do their part in this. Uh, if we're going to turn this corner,
2: all right, Chris. You know one of the most important roles that uh, that. I've- You know, a legislator or somebody representing Utah will be protecting that Colorado water compact. And we need to make sure that we get the water that's allocated. Um, Many of the other decisions will be based on, uh, I think, state officials are best uh, on how to uh, protect the water that we have as far as use goes. Because I don't, I don't want the federal government telling uh, the citizens of the state of Utah how they have to use their water. And so to make sure the federal government stays out of it and allow, allow state officials. There are great technologies. I was recently down in Blanding. I was having a conversation uh, with a, a, a government official down there. And he showed me uh, pictures of uh, uh, new technology where gro- the, the amount of uh, growth... Uh, they were getting the same amount of growth with 3% uh, of the water usage. And so there are these new technologies that we can use uh, that, that that we need to look at um, uh, to protect uh, our limited resources. But it, but it's best done on a state level, not on a federal government level.
0: All right, next question. Uh, we'll start with you on this one, Chris. Uh, we've stress-tested our constitutional republic in the, the midst of of global wars and pandemics and economic crisis of all kinds but we've we've never really stress tested our form of government uh, and with a lack of trust in the institutions of government uh, and there's a, a lot in Washington who are using the institutions of government uh, as a personal platform uh, to raise campaign money to get media appearances to develop themselves as a personality uh, Chris, what do you think it will take to begin to restore trust in the institutions of government? You know, uh, I'm a big believer in transparency. And so anything, everything
2: that we can do to, you know, whether it's voting, uh, you know, making it easier for people to know, understand the process uh, of voting, that's how you get... Uh, uh, more confidence it's the same thing with you know there's certain individuals that are concerned about policing policies and stuff like that it's i i've always found it best for uh, uh government officials to kind of lay the cards out don't don't hide things and i think that's one of the things that that people are concerned about uh because as, as institutions are undermined uh people naturally just lose that trust. And, and it's the same thing, you know, that's one of, for me, one of the big issues that I've been uh, fighting for the last year is critical race theory, is our kids are being taught that America isn't a good country. America is a good country. Uh, uh, we have brought more different uh Ethnicities, religions from around the world uh, in relative peace in the United States. And yet that's not what's being reinforced by in our education system. And so we need to need to, to challenge these uh, damaging uh, belief systems.
3: John, from my front row seat after four and a half years in Washington, I'm absolutely convinced we reward the wrong behavior in politicians. And I see some of my colleagues who stand on the Capitol steps and yell and scream and shout, and uh, the fundraising dollars flow in, uh, the social media rewards them, and they end up on the cable network. And I see hosts of good uh, colleagues, both on the right and the left, who put their head down, work hard, pass legislation. And nobody pays attention. I I can't tell you how frustrating, to be honest, to go through, um, you know, a series of town hall meetings and say, you know, I've done this and this and this and this. And somebody will say, well, why aren't you more like? And they'll name one of these politicians, right, who screams and shouts and doesn't get anything done. They don't even belong on committees. Right, they've been kicked off their committees, and yet that's rewarded uh, by constituents. And so, I, I really think, and <laughs> I'll just—I t- know my wife's listening. She's going to hate this because she hates when I say this, but we're a reflection of you as elected officials. And if you don't like what you see, it's—it's it's really kind of time to look in the mirror because we truly are a reflection of you. All right, Maria.
1: Uh, Let's move on. Supreme Court is about to make a decision in the next couple of weeks on Roe v. Wade. If the court does overturn Roe v. Wade, my question to you is, what will you do to support women and families um, as far as sex education, access to birth control, those types of things? And John, we'll begin with you.
3: I think that's such a great way to ask the question because it seems um, almost imminent that this will be announced and we've not spent enough time talking about uh, women. I-, I know that as a man this is like, I-, I-, I almost have no qualifications to even talk about this topic because there's things I just don't understand. But I do know this, we don't have near enough resources for women who may have an unwanted pregnancy. We don't have near enough women uh, resources for women who are trying to raise these children and we don't have enough uh, mental health, we don't have enough healthcare and so i do think it's very important that we do a deep look at ourselves and say look if this is the law of the land what comes with this is a huge responsibility to help people parent these children you know uh you know i will be extremely happy if if the ruling comes
2: down the way that i think it should have been and I, i think this is a lesson in many other issues i think this is should have always been a state issue uh you know uh and uh we shouldn't have had this conflict. The, the, the courts ruled for, for that, but um, and as far as the federal government's role in, in that is just to making sure that tax policy does, doesn't uh, hurt those individuals uh, that that you know that have children that we don't uh, make things more difficult. Uh, but but. But as far as this specific issue, again, I think it's best handled on a state issue. Because whenever the federal government gets involved, they seem to make things worse. And, and to me, it doesn't make sense to send money to Washington, D.C., only to have them give it back. And so uh, I do hope, I, I know that there's a number of private organizations that are out there that are willing to step up and help those women that find themselves in, a, uh, in that situation uh, single uh, and, and pregnant. And so I hope, I look forward to the, the community as a whole to fill that need.
1: Um, Let me drill down just a little bit farther because we know that um, what is a federal issue is health care or it has been, whether it should be or, you know, shouldn't be. So let's drill down just a little bit on that and talk about the birth control part of the equation because if you ask many women, they say that they are penalized but yet they're They have to pay exorbitant prices for birth control where a man doesn't need to pay that price. And so my question to each of you would be, what needs to be done in that area? And I think, Chris, Chris, we'll start with you. uh,
2: Again, I I would look at that uh, as uh, a... A, a state issue from from state to state, you know a lot of these things uh, when they 're handled on a federal, you have balancing issues you know with with birth control uh, I, I personally my my, my religious belief doesn 't have a, a problem with birth control, but there are other uh, uh, religions that do, and so you 've seen that that 's happened specifically with the Catholic Church and balancing those the, those issues but again, I think those are best done on a uh, on a state level and, and and I do remember hearing you know um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, as far as the birth control, the, the birth control is extreme, extremely affordable right now. And uh, and so for me, again, I, I am just so fearful when the federal government gets into those type of decisions, those are best left uh, for the states uh, to make those uh, personal health care decisions.
1: John?
3: Well, I'm going to let you all read between the lines here, but I'm a 62-year-old man, and I have to tell you, I'm not really familiar with the cost of birth control. But I'll tell you this. Last year, we lost, depends on which numbers you look at, uh, 600, 700, 800,000 babies to abortion. And I'll tell you what, you, you tell me how we get that to zero, and I'm at the table to talk about whatever it takes to get that to zero. Okay. An important part of
0: getting things done in, in Washington is recognizing that uh, there are allies and alliances. Uh, and sometimes you're going to compete head-to-head with somebody uh, and maybe debate and argue them uh, tooth and nail. And at other times you need to be... Lincoln Arms and uh, working together to get uh, something done. Uh, so, Wallace is kind of in a in a split part, uh, and we're starting with John on this one. Uh, John, tell us, what are some of the important allies, or maybe even surprising allies, that you have found in Washington? And Chris, uh, to you, we'll tweak it slightly of who would you have as, uh, or who are you looking to in terms of potential allies uh, and alliances when you get back to, to Washington?
3: You know, Boyd, I think that's one of the most important questions uh, dealing with effectiveness. And, and I'll point to this uh, caucus that I've put together on energy and, and and climate and security. And I'm pleased to tell you it's now the second largest caucus in Washington, D.C. And I have Democrats walk up to me. on the, And by the way, they can't join. I've had them walk up to me on the street. I've had them invite me to dinner. I've had them catch me in the, on the a floor voting and said, I love what you're doing. Please keep it up. How do I help? And I think a lot of that has to do with my reputation back there as being a reasonable, of of, of not embarrassing them. There's plenty of windows to embarrass your colleagues back there. And they pay attention to what you say in your social media. And they they, they know who they can work with. One of my greatest relationships in Congress is Congressman Lowenthal from San Diego, a very liberal Democrat. And we worked on a public lands bill. And I I secured his support for that down in Emory County. Every time he saw me in the hallway, he would set down his things and come up and give me a hug. And uh, that was pretty cool and uh, we 're very very different philosophically, but we understand that there 's times when we need to work together
2: Chris you know one of the places I, I actually worked with uh, i think Boyd uh, you know i in in twenty 20- 16 i ran the ted cruz campaign and you're in the state of utah and uh when i ran five years ago ted cruz uh endorsed me uh, i haven't asked for it this time because it's very difficult to go against a sitting uh um, somebody that's sitting in congress with you right now but but that's a person that i have relationships with uh, you know i had have relationships i was endorsed by jim jordan and mark meadows uh five years ago i i Uh, Again, I haven't asked him to endorse me this time around, but I do still have relationships with those type of individuals. Uh, I was in D.C. this last week and uh, had conversations with uh, other representatives. I, I, I do believe that there is a unique opportunity this year. There's going to be a record class of freshman legislators. And there's something about your class that is unique. And, uh, you know, when I was in the Utah legislature, I was able to put a, a coalition together and make the, the, the agenda more um, conservative. And that's one of the things that I look forward to doing back in D.C.
1: Many people are exhausted right now with politics. So my question is, what would you do to end the divisiveness in Congress? And Chris, I'll start with you.
2: You know, I think people are uh, exhausted, you know, but but if you study history the founding fathers didn't always get along uh and so uh you know I, I would encourage everybody to make sure they stay in the process because we have some serious issues that are facing us i um i you know i am greatly concerned not just to our uh foreign enemies but but we have some d- domestic threats that are going right now and so i know it's tough but as i look at my kids i look at my you know i have one grandchild uh, pe- pe- Please stay involved because if we don't stay involved, if we let those uh, that just make it so difficult that they know that good people won't get involved, it's going to get worse. And so my plea for everybody is this is not the time to, 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 to stay away. We, we, everybody needs to stand up. In fact, I would argue that we won't survive if people don't get off, off the middle and start letting people know what they believe and start defending uh, the Constitution of the United States of America.
3: All right, John. I'm going to go back to my Representative Lowenthal story from San Diego and tell you why he gave me a hug. Um, He was the one Democrat that could block my bill. And so I went and sat down in his office with him, with my team, and we laid out the maps of Emory County. And I said, what is it that, that you don't like? I want to get you to not hating my bill. And he smiled and he laughed and he clicked off four things. Um, that he said, if you do this, I won't hit your bill. And we went to work. And you know what's interesting is we found answers that were not only satisfactory to him, but actually made our bill better for us. And if I had a little longer, I could explain what I mean by that. And in the end, he ended up not only not hating my bill, but he voted uh, for my bill. And uh, that's what's not happening enough in Congress. We don't have to fight. We don't have to be angry with each other. That doesn't mean we need to compromise. It doesn't mean we need to give up our values. But it's just like a neighborhood relationship, right? It's like uh, any other relationship we have in our life. You have to invest in it, and you have to be a good person. All right. We are coming
0: up against the uh, clock here. You've been listening to the third congressional district debate as we draw to a close. uh, Each candidate will be given two minutes for a closing statement. And, of course, uh, ballots are on kitchen tables and in mailboxes. Uh, And it's time for everyone to chime in and vote. And so uh, as we close this out, your your closing arguments. And uh, we'll start with John.
3: Thank you. Well, first of all, it's been a delight to be with you. And uh, let me just reemphasize how honored I am to serve in this capacity. Uh, a, a few months ago, um, we had a vote in the middle of the night, and I found myself walking from my office uh, through the tunnels over to the Capitol and walking through the Capitol Dome. Many of you of have, have, have the listeners have had that experience, but it's usually with thousands of people. And I found myself walking through that Capitol Dome all by myself in the middle of the night, and it just dawned on me what an amazing honor it was to represent this district as I went and cast my vote. Uh, for them uh, on their behalf. Uh, I hope as voters look at me uh, that they, like I will be, would be proud of my voting record. I tried very, very hard to represent this district in my voting record. I tried very hard to be transparent. I think even my toughest critics would tell you uh, that I'm more transparent than probably anybody in Congress. The number of town hall meetings we've we've had, the number of places that we've been to, uh, to meet with people. I've been down in rural Utah probably more than all of my predecessors combined. I love that part of my district and I love serving those good people down there. It's a tri- minnesota to serve and i'm asking uh, for their vote so that i can go back and, and continue the work that i'm doing the work i'm doing on energy policy the work i'm doing on health care the work i'm doing on mental health work i'm doing on high tech all these incredibly important is- issues uh, for our district and i just want to re-emphasize that given that opportunity i'll, I'll recommit to give all my effort to that to represent this district to, to the utmost of my ability and uh, enjoy uh serving if i'm given that opportunity thank you
2: you know, uh, when I was in the Utah legislature, uh, you know, I passed significant b- bills. I passed the first human t- trafficking bill in the state of Utah. Uh, I uh, all of a sudden found myself liked by bikers because I passed uh, a, a bill that uh, made it a felony for leaving in the scene of an accident when there was serious bodily harm. And that had, we had a number of deaths from hit-and-run drivers and, and also from children. Um, and uh, pass significant uh, a, a bill to protect our you know state's uh, lands, but I never looked at my primary responsibility is passing bills. The number one thing that I looked at uh, when I was a legislator is making sure that I uh, protected my constituents' constitutional rights. As I've watched what's happened over the last two years, I, I have felt like my rights have been infringed from the federal government like never before, with COVID restrictions. I, I had a child that was in elementary school, junior high, high school, and two in college. And each of my children were harmed by uh, mask mandates, uh uh, there was pressure for vaccine mandates. There was uh, COVID restrictions. They've all been harmed in specific ways. And one of the things that I can promise uh, the constituents in the third district that I will fight to protect their rights, whether it's their Second Amendment rights, whether it's their First Amendment rights, which everybody here, you know, I've, I've had things banned on fa- Facebook that, that are true. And uh, we are being attacked again like never before, our, our freedom of speech and who we are. And so that's one of the things. I, I think it's time for all of us to get up off the couch uh, and to push back and to say, hey, we have rights. We've left the, let the left take over. And if you send me back there, I will do that. I, I, there are significant differences in bills. If you go to my website at chrisherrod.org, you can see some of the places where I differ, differ on bills. But, but I make that promise that I will wear myself out protecting your constitutional rights if you send me to D.C.
1: A big thanks to both of you. Big thanks to Representative John Curtis and Challenger Chris Herrod for joining us in this third congressional debate and sharing your thoughts on the issues that are important to all of us. You've
0: been listening to the third congressional debate here on KSL News Radio. I'm Boyd Matheson with Maria Shaleos tag team partnering on the debate today. Thanks to both of our candidates today. And thanks to all of you. And this is your
3: opportunity. Vote. Make your voice heard. Be part of the process. That's how we make a difference.